Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, episode 25, From the Ground Up. Last time, we shed some light on the somewhat more murky-than-we-thought origins of the Apollo program. NASA had figured out the broad strokes of how Apollo would work, and President Kennedy had provided a laser focus on a lunar landing by the end of the decade. To pull this off, NASA needed to not only build rockets and space vehicles, but a wide range of new infrastructure projects to support them. Before we get into the new stuff, let's do a quick survey of what NASA had available at this time. When we look at NASA today, it's easy to forget that in 1958, they were little more than a loose collection of research centers. Okay, it's sort of still a loose collection of research centers, but they have a lot more stuff now. When NASA was formed in October of 1958, it brought along the four research centers that were formerly part of its predecessor, NACA. NACA was primarily a research-oriented organization, so it shouldn't be a surprise that these four centers were mainly geared towards basic research. First was Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. Since Langley is the oldest of the NACA centers, this actually makes it the oldest part of NASA. It was founded in 1917 to help study the fundamentals of flight, Keep in mind that 1917 was only 14 years after the first ever airplane flight by the Wright brothers. Researchers here delved into the basics of wings, propulsion, airframes, wind tunnels, all the stuff that is easy to take for granted these days. During most of Project Mercury, the Space Task Group's offices were at Langley, so in a way, NASA human spaceflight was born here. Next was Ames Research Center, founded in 1939 and located in Mountain View, California. Ames was similar to Langley in that its main goal was to study the fundamentals of flight. They used an array of wind tunnels to study different flight regimes. The usual subsonic that you and I experience when flying home for Thanksgiving, the troublesome transonic, flying past the speed of sound, supersonic, flying faster than the speed of sound, and the exotic hypersonic flying more than five times faster than the speed of sound. They were also part of early studies on computational fluid dynamics and figuring out stuff like air traffic control. Over in Cleveland, Ohio, we'll find the Aircraft Engine Research Laboratory. At least that's what it was called when it was founded in 1942. It was then renamed to the Flight Propulsion Research Laboratory, the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory, and the NASA Lewis Research Center. These days, it's known as the NASA John H. Glenn Research Center at Lewis Field. A bit of a mouthful, but it's a nice nod to the memory of the great Mercury astronaut, and whoever Lewis is, who I did not look up. Lewis, which it was called during the Apollo days, focused on propulsion. Airplane engines, rocket engines, and even advanced engines that ran on cryogenic, aka really, really cold, fuels. The work they did on liquid hydrogen upper stages helped pave the way to the moon. It also helped create the Centaur upper stage, which is still being used, with some improvements, to this day. And lastly is the Murak Flight Test Unit. I had some trouble figuring out when Murak was founded since it was so closely associated with Edwards Air Force Base. Murak also went through a series of names, becoming the High Speed Flight Research Center, the High Speed Flight Station, the Dryden Flight Research Center, named after the prominent NACA and NASA figure, and today is the Armstrong Flight Research Center, named after Neil Armstrong. Murak, or Dryden, or Armstrong, or wherever, was where engineers could put their theories on high-speed flight to the test. 
All sorts of fast and strange aircraft have graced the skies over this center, including one of our favorites, the X-15. NASA clearly wasn't starting from a blank slate here, but you may have noticed something that all of these facilities had in common. They all focused on aircraft, not spacecraft. I think that's pretty reasonable. After all, that was NACA's primary focus, and the first A in NASA does stand for aeronautics. But as important as aeronautical research was, it wasn't going to get us to the moon. The air is very thin there. What NASA needed was dedicated space facilities. It was going to need operation centers dedicated to actually accomplishing the missions, assembly buildings where they could construct massive rockets, test stands where they could fire them, and launch facilities to send them on their way. So let's see what they came up with. First on our tour is the Marshall Space Flight Center. Marshall was founded on July 1st, 1960, near Huntsville, Alabama. Its mission, in short, was to design, build, and test rockets. In order to properly tell the story of Marshall Space Flight Center, we're going to have to take another step back into history, and believe it or not, some of the repercussions of World War I. Since both world wars are a historical rabbit hole that I am woefully unqualified to discuss in detail, I'll stick to the high-level points. One of the outcomes of World War I was that Germany was forbidden from working on new artillery designs. I can see this making sense. The whole continent had just been devastated by a crippling war, and the countries that won wanted to make sure that the countries that lost didn't stir up more trouble in the future. Unfortunately, to quote the great mathematician Ian Malcolm, life finds a way. Artillery was the state of the art in causing death and destruction at a distance at the time, but there were other possibilities left unexplored in favor of what worked. But with Germany forbidden from working on artillery, if they wanted long-range weapons, they had no choice but to pursue those options. Instead of artillery, Germany fostered a bunch of forward-looking dreamers in the nascent field of rocketry. They gave them money, they gave them support, and they gave them a place to develop their new devices, a place called Pinamunde. Located in the northeast of Germany, Pinamunde is an island where these early rocket engineers could safely start to figure out how to take the theory and make practical weapons. A lot of interesting things came out of Pinamunde, but what we care about the most is a weapon called the V-2. The V stands for a German word that I have absolutely no hope of pronouncing, but the translation I usually see is Vengeance Weapon 2. It was a 46-foot-tall liquid-fueled rocket capable of lofting a payload on the order of a metric ton over 200 miles. It just so happened that London was within 200 miles. Hmm. The V-2 was a real nasty piece of work, but was certainly technically impressive. Its single engine burned ethanol and liquid oxygen to generate 160,000 pounds of thrust. It had rudimentary guidance and control systems, including gyroscopes and controllable vanes that deflected the rocket exhaust. And perhaps most impressive for an early rocket, it actually worked! Thankfully for the good guys, while it did work, it became operational too late, delivered too small of a payload, and cost too much money to make that big of a difference in the war. So, let's fast forward to the end of the war. Germany was clearly in the process of losing. The Americans were pressing in from the west, and the Soviets were pressing in from the east. What was a German rocket scientist to do? Let's ask our next character, Werner von Braun. 
Von Braun and his team were the ones responsible for the V-2 success. He was a passionate believer in spaceflight, and helped develop the weapon in the hopes that the technology involved would be used after the war for the peaceful exploration of space. We're going to leave the morality of Von Braun's decisions for others to explore, and instead look at the choice before him. Should he and his team surrender to the Americans, or to the Soviets? Thankfully for, well, probably everybody, they chose the Americans, and they set off to find the incoming American forces. Meanwhile, America was looking for them too. Operation Paperclip was an effort to gather up the numerous scientists and engineers helping the German war effort so that they could come work for us. Von Braun and his team were duly gathered up and shipped across the Atlantic to get to work. They eventually found their way to Huntsville, Alabama, where they became the Army Ballistic Missile Agency and worked on the Redstone missile for the U.S. Army. The Redstone was basically an upgraded version of the V-2. You may remember it as the launch vehicle for the first two manned Mercury missions. Skipping over some stuff that we'll cover in our next episode, the ABMA was eventually transferred to NASA and became, you guessed it, the Marshall Space Flight Center. Marshall is enormous. Under its umbrella we find, among other things, the Mashoud Assembly Facility and the Stennis Space Center. Mashoud houses some of the largest buildings in the world, and is where the mighty Saturn V will eventually be assembled. Stennis is where they would test these beasts. Stennis itself is pretty large, since all of the test facilities need to be not only far away from human population centers, but from each other. If one of these test vehicles blew up, it was going to blow up big. It'd be bad enough losing one test site without taking out all the other ones. When the space race started, most of this was still just a bunch of mosquito-infested, inhospitable land. One handy thing they all had in common was access to waterways that were connected to the Gulf of Mexico. Rather than attempt to move the launch vehicles over land, they could be shuttled from assembly to testing to eventual launch on barges in these handy waterways. These days, Marshall continues to add to its legacy of launch vehicle development. At this moment, they're working on NASA's next big rocket, the Space Launch System. Booster development is obviously a pretty critical part of a space program, but you also need a place to run the missions. This is where the Goddard Space Flight Center, located in Greenbelt, Maryland, comes in. Goddard, named after rocketry pioneer Robert Goddard, was founded in 1959 as NASA's first dedicated spaceflight center. It played a prominent role in the early history of human spaceflight as the managing center for the Space Task Group. It contributed computer and network expertise to help gather data from the worldwide tracking network and put it in a usable format, as well as crunching the numbers related to the spacecraft trajectory. Its role in human spaceflight would soon be overshadowed by the next stop on our tour, but we would never have gotten off the ground without Goddard's contributions. These days, Goddard continues to build and operate numerous science-gathering spacecraft. Perhaps most well-known is the James Webb Space Telescope, commonly seen as the successor to the Human Space Telescope. Among its fleet of spacecraft are the Terra, Aqua, and Aura Earth Observation Satellites. I mention that because a few episodes after this podcast started, I landed a job writing support software for these three missions. So they have a special place in my heart and get a special shout-out. As I mentioned, the Space Task Group, while located at Langley, was managed by Goddard, 
But as Project Mercury drew to a close and Project Gemini started to ramp up, the people making up the space task group were all moved from Maryland down to Houston, Texas to become the Manned Spacecraft Center. Bummer. Sorry, Texans. The Manned Spacecraft Center, now known as the Johnson Space Center, became the hub of all things related to human spaceflight. It's where the astronauts trained, where the program management offices were housed, and it's where the missions were controlled from. Starting with Gemini 4, all NASA human space missions were controlled from Houston the moment the launch vehicle cleared the tower. And rounding out our tour is the Launch Operations Center. You may know it better as the Kennedy Space Center. So far, NASA had been getting by with piggybacking on some of the Air Force's infrastructure. Project Mercury and Project Gemini were launched on Air Force rockets from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station on the east coast of Florida. But once the Apollo program got started, it quickly became apparent that NASA was going to need their own launch facilities. The boosters they had planned were far too big for the launch pads at Cape Canaveral. So NASA acquired a huge tract of land just north of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and started hacking away at the swampy vegetation. Since it's easy to confuse the two, I want to reiterate that the Kennedy Space Center and the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station are two separate things. KSC is run by NASA. Cape Canaveral is run by the Air Force. KSC has three launch pads today, Launch Complex 39A, B, and C, and until the recent SpaceX launch, was just dedicated to manned spaceflight. Cape Canaveral has lots of launch pads and plays host to numerous commercial and government launches every year. They're right next to each other, and they do sort of the same thing, but don't mix them up. One of the more distinctive parts of the Kennedy Space Center is the Vehicle Assembly Building. This is the enormous blocky building with the NASA logo and American flag that you've almost certainly seen in any number of documentaries, TV shows, and movies. It remains the tallest single-story building in the world. It was designed to allow for the on-site construction of up to four Saturn V rockets at a time, and was necessitated by a change in launch strategy. You may have noticed that up until this point, rockets were assembled and tested on the launch pad itself. This is undesirable for a few reasons. First, it leaves the rockets exposed to the elements more than is strictly necessary. But more importantly, it ties up the launch pad. If anything goes wrong when testing a rocket, it either just sits there while they fix it, preventing any other launches, or it has to be taken down and tested all over again. With the VAB, NASA could assemble their monstrous rockets in a nice protected environment. With service platforms placed at strategic levels, it was simple to access and inspect equipment and make sure everything was running smoothly. If everything wasn't moving smoothly, no big deal. While that rocket was being fixed, another could still be assembled and checked out. No problem. But this does raise the question of how to get the rocket from the VAB to the launch pad. A favorite with space enthusiasts and six-year-old boys everywhere, the Crawler Transporter was the tool for the job. The crawler is essentially a giant car plus a giant jack. Each of the two crawler transporters weighs over 6 million pounds. They're 131 feet long, 114 feet wide, and clock in at a blistering 1 mile per hour. But fear not, with no load, they can manage 2 miles per hour. Better bring the nitrous if you're in a hurry. 
The crawler consists of four large treads, like a tank, and one massive platform in the center to carry the load. Each link, or shoe, of the treads weighs in at about as much as a car, and there are 228 of them in total. To get the rocket to the pad, the CT would first go pick up the launch platform and service tower, called the mobile service structure, that the rocket relied on. It would slip underneath the platform, then raise itself up like a jack, so that the platform rested securely on top. Next, it would drive, oh so slowly, to the VAB, where the rocket could be built on the platform. When everything was good to go, the crawler would carry the platform and rocket out to the launch pad. Once there, it would deposit the platform and make a not-so-hasty retreat. The crawlers are super cool, and they're still in service to this day. They supported all of the Apollo flights, all of the space shuttle flights, the Ares-1X test flight, and someday soon, the new SLS rocket. Over the course of 50-plus years, they have racked up more than 2,500 miles on their odometers. And last stop on both our little tour, as well as the road to the moon, was the launch pads themselves. Like everything else associated with Apollo, launch complexes 39A and 39B were enormous. If you're wondering about the 39C I mentioned earlier, that wasn't built until decades later, and is intended for small launches. Since Florida isn't known for its stable ground, in order to cut a flame trench beneath the rocket, they instead had to build the launch pad up. Each launch pad is made out of 52,000 cubic meters of reinforced concrete. They have a long 5-degree ramp on one side to allow the crawler transporter to trundle up to the launch site with its heavy load. The flame trench, which carries away super-hot gases from the rocket engines, is 42 feet deep, 58 feet wide, and 450 feet long. It's also a place you super don't want to be come launch day. I've seen these launch pads in person, and it's hard to properly convey the scale. 39A and B are also still used to this day. Both supported Apollo and the Space Shuttle, and are now poised to support a new era of spaceflight. 39B has had its on-pad structure removed so it can be used in a clean pad configuration which I like to think of as BYO service structure. It's where the SLS will be launched, but thanks to the clean pad configuration, it's also available for commercial launches that have outgrown the smaller facilities nearby. 39A has been leased by Space Exploration Technologies, better known as SpaceX. At the time of this writing, they have launched one Falcon 9 from the pad and plan many more to come in the years that follow. They also hope to finally get the Falcon Heavy off the ground in the coming months, using the former Apollo pad as the blast-off point. And that concludes our little tour of NASA's moonshot infrastructure. There are obviously other corners of NASA that I didn't quite touch on, but these were the main players in our quest to get to the moon. When I look at photos of one of the 12 lucky guys to make it walking around on the moon, I try to keep these centers in mind. Any large undertaking takes a team effort, and the Apollo program was nothing if not a large undertaking. It was NASA as a whole that made it happen. Next time, we'll talk about what that massive crawler brought to those massive launch pads. Spoiler, it's pretty massive. The boosters that carried Apollo to the heavens were perhaps the flashiest parts of the entire program, 
but which giant rocket would be the one to carry humans to the moon was far from certain in the early 60s. We'll look at the potential lineup of Apollo launch vehicles. From the comparatively diminutive Saturn C1, the more familiar than you think Saturn C5, the staggering Nova, and even the tiny little Joe 2. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>